We're going to turn to God's Word, and there's no prizes for guessing where we're going. We're going to the book of, of uh, Ruth, and we're in chapter 2. <clears throat> I think sometimes when ministers speak on Ruth, they think there's four sermons here because there are four chapters, and they divide, and they rely on uh, this man Stephen Langton and his divisions. I think in a, a story like this, we maybe go back and forward uh, a wee bit, uh, but we're in Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read it, uh, and then I'm going to speak, uh, well, on it and all our bits and pieces as well. Ruth 2 and verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name (coughs) was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his uh, young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bound to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that uh, you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full uh, reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have confronted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not uh, one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. 
and uh, also put out some uh, from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was an ephat uh, of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out uh, and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law whom she had worked uh, uh, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young woman, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman. Uh, of Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest and she lived with her mother-in-law and we know that God will bless this reading uh, from his own word a few weeks ago uh, we were in Scotland and we were outside Stirling and we took a by road and uh, I sort of had a hunch that we were going in the right direction because there is uh, a memorial to a very famous soldier, uh, uh, David Sterling, who was the founder of the SAS. And on that road, as you drive up the hill, uh, you see on a plinth uh, this bronze, full-sized life figure, maybe even bigger than life, looking over the valley. It's It's a beautiful setting. And I have a friend that I studied with 30, 40 years ago uh, in the States, and he's from Stirling. And we pulled into the little car park, and Marjorie hadn't seen the memorial. She went to see the memorial, and I rang hard. And I said, hard, uh, where I'm, I'm parked. Oh, he says, I remember that place, and I've only heard of the memorial. It wasn't there when I was growing up. And I said, the interesting thing is this. It was beginning to get dark. It was later on in the evening. The interesting thing in this is there's a sign in the car park. And it says, this memorial and this car park has been put here by the SAS uh, Regimental Association. And it says below it, no overnight parking. And I thought to myself, you know, if Stirling District Council said no overnight parking, would you listen to them if you really were there in your motorhome? Or you might say, oh, it's only the council. If the SAS say no overnight parking, would you be inclined to listen? And Hard laughed at the other end of the, uh, of the iPhone call. And with that, a van drove into the car park. It was a rusty old transit van. And there was a young girl driving it. 
and on the side of it, it said something like Sterling Veterinary Clinic. I says, what do you think, Hard? He says, I would move out of that car park very quickly because the back doors might open and the SAS might get out. The point I'm trying to make is, yes, Ruth is a short story, but Ruth comes to us with authority. Not just as a short story, not just as a love story, but it's the very word of God, isn't it? God is going to speak. Yes, the SAS would get our attention. But the God of the universe, when he speaks to us, he really gets our attention. And you know, we can miss that a wee bit because when you think about it, you know, if you read the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal. That's very direct, isn't it? If you turn to the New Testament and it says uh, a man is to love his wife as Christ loved the church, you don't need a lot of interpretation to understand what that's getting at. But perhaps when you go to a literary form in the Old Testament, like a short story and whatever, well, it's the then and there. It's the barley harvest. And yes, we have seen harvests here and all sorts of things. But there is a sense in which we have to begin to try and tease out what it's saying in the then and there and apply it to the here and now. And that's what we are uh, doing. I want to leave you a series of, of R's uh, this morning. I hope you find that helpful. Uh, I'm sure you don't find pointless sermons helpful. They can be pointless in two ways. And sometimes we're maybe guilty of that. But this is revelation. This is God speaking to you and to me and to us as the church. And we have to remember that. What R's do we find here? Well, <clears throat> I think the, the first one, and that's where we're, we're maybe mixing into all our chapters, and if you weren't here yesterday, I'm sure uh, you're familiar enough with the story uh, not to be left behind by this. But the, the first thing is the return. It's the return of Naomi uh, uh, to, to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And when I think of that, I think of the line, the poetic line, I don't remember the rest of it, and I'm sure it's not as good as this line, but it says there's a way back to God from the dark pass of sin. A way back to God from the dark pass of sin. And surely that was what was happening in the life of Naomi. It was, a, it was a geographical move for her. It was from Moab, and it was with her foreign-born daughter-in-law uh, back to Bethlehem. But it was the way back from the dark pass of sin in a geographical sense. But there's also, I think, we miss it if we just see it as a geographical move. We have to see it uh, in our own lives, and a lot more common than we think in our own lives, where we need to return from sinful practices and sinful ideas and sinful thoughts, and even a sinful way of life 
that has seeped into our lives and is inclined to corrupt our relationship with God. So don't just point the finger at Naomi and say, well, that's not me. There is a sense where we all have to keep returning in one way uh, to God and to his ways and to have done with the, the, the lesser things and to serve the Lord, the King of Kings. So do remember that. And if we had time, and maybe we'll go back to it this evening, but we need to tease that out in our own lives where we are moving. You see, there are things that will move us away at times from serving the living God, aren't there? When we think of it, maybe it's career, maybe it's popularity, maybe it's, you know, being reared by our children rather than us rearing our children to one degree or other. Uh, maybe it's just... Uh, well, finance is more advantageous, and it doesn't necessarily mean moving home, although in many ways it's seen in, in very real contrast when we, we, we do that particular move. So we have, uh, this is revelation. It's not maybe just the, uh, relating a love story. It's revelation. It's in the then and there, and it really needs, in a sense, to be dragged in to the here and now. It talks about Naomi's uh, return, and it talks about what, yes, she had left behind, and we've, we've said a, a bit about that. And then the other thing, and I want to go back to this again, because I, I did mention it yesterday. It talks about Ruth, and it talks about her uh, regeneration. And we, we shouldn't miss that, uh, that there's a great perf profession of faith. Uh, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. You know, so often we, we see our salvation uh, maybe portrayed by, by something uh, that we see uh, on a on a tree, uh, a text, and maybe taken a bit in isolation. But when you begin to think through uh, this, this story, I remember as a, someone at university, a, a young RP minister, I'll not mention the name publicly, but a young RP minister speaking at an epilogue after a, a party and being quite startled because I've been brought up in the evangelical world and, and everything to a degree, seemed to revolve around that time where you turned from darkness to light and the word saved was, was peppered and used all of the time. And maybe nothing much was put behind it sometimes, but I remember him talking about the creation and the fall and redemption. I thought, right, there's an interesting uh, turn from the usual evangelistic address, but it seemed to stick in my mind all those years in a flat in Carrickfergus. Ruth's regeneration. 
uh, something that God did in our heart. And yes, we contrasted it with Paul on the road to Damascus. We looked at that. And we looked at Timothy, who had known the Holy Scriptures all his life, basically, which were able to make him wise unto salvation. And John the Baptist, even, in his mother's womb, the regeneration that was to happen there. And all those things were expressed in a real profession of faith. <clears throat> uh, I think some of us were chatting yesterday and one or two names come up and I, I was thinking about it. You, you know Bertie Johnson, uh, who attends Glen Manus, um, and his son Mark has written a little book uh, on the Apostles' Creed. And in the prayer meeting in, in Newton Crumlin, they, they spent some time going through that. Jim took them uh, through that. But there's a great foreword to it by, by Sinclair Ferguson. And Sinclair Ferguson was commenting that uh, when he went to his last charge uh, in the United States, so big church, and there were several ministers, and the first part of the service uh, was taken by one of the associates or, or assistants, and they had a habit at the, somewhere near the beginning of the service. They would ask the congregation, the minister would put one question to the congregation, and it was, Christian, what do you believe? And uh, the answer that was expected was that they would repeat the Apostles' Creed. And Sinclair says in that little introduction that at the beginning of term, he would look around the congregation, the minister would ask this question, and he would see about half the students or more looking at each other thinking they'd got the wrong congregation that this was an Anglican church or a Roman Catholic church or, or something else. And uh, he said they, they, they looked decidedly uncomfortable. But he said by about Halloween, he said the most enthusiastic repeaters of the Apostles' Creed were those students because they had, got, they had really got it that they wanted to profess and wanted to say. I'm not arguing that we should be doing that in our congregations. I'm just making the illustration. They really were excited by the fact that every week they would, they would profess their faith openly and in a meaningful way in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get that with Ruth. Now, she wasn't repeating a creed that hadn't even been written at that time, although it's a pretty ancient document. She wasn't repeating that, but what was she doing? She was the one who said to her mother-in-law, I'm going with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. She wasn't like her sister-in-law, who uh, was within the orbit to a degree of, of, of the, the church, the Old Testament church, but just about there and no more and, and really didn't fully believe and uh, went back to her old ways. So we could debate, did she take some of the truth there? Did she not? I'm not sure. But Ruth was the one who was fully committed. Your people the worshipping people of God. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. 
and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also of anything but death parts me from you. There's almost a sense that this has echoes of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Because the, the, the people of God certainly were included in that, and she was the one uh, that was showing it. So Ruth was very much a believing individual. So we have uh, Ruth's uh, profession. We have her uh, regeneration. And then we, we, can we move on to Naomi? And what do we see in Naomi? Surely we see here her restoration. <clears throat> I went out full and the Lord has brought me back empty. I wonder uh, when we begin to look at Naomi, again, can we see something in Naomi speaking to ourselves? Naomi, Naomi was quick to say that she was a better old woman, a better old woman. She said that about herself. And she easily is put into the category because of how she's thinking now of being maybe that pushy woman who took her husband away, uh, said, you know, uh, the neighbours are doing well, but we need to do much better than them. We need to get out of here. It's all right going to church on Sunday, but there are certain things that we need to get ordered. And here there's not much to eat even. Let's go to Moab. I hear that there's a good life to be had for us there. I was talking to my daughter last night, uh, and she called over and she said about a family. And I said, well, I, I don't really know that family. They're a wee bit younger than me. And then they said, oh, well, she has, he has a couple of sons. And one of them, well, he wouldn't be an SMO, close on it, maybe an SMO Sunday morning only. I was asked once, were there many SMOs in my congregation, uh, uh, Sunday morning only. There's a sense maybe in the bigger Presbyterian church that we're relatively still successful in, in keeping uh, maybe a category of SMOs. My first congregation, um, <clears throat> there had been a ministry not immediately before me that but maybe 20 or 30 years before that and the minister could not have been described as a gospel man in fact I, I knew of two people who had been converted and uh, one of them a lady and I know both these people and uh, she was told that it was foolishness and the other was a man and uh, he wasn't told in a such gentle way, and he went off uh, to the brethren. But in my time, he, whatever had happened, he came back. And the one thing that startled me that he said, he said, you know, uh, I used to think that uh, the purer you could get the people meeting on a Sunday morning, the better. But then of a family, and they're not there. Uh, he says, this place is pretty mixed. But he says, they're still coming and they're sitting under the sound 
of the gospel. And there's a sense in which, yes, that, that, is, that is good, uh, uh, provided uh, those who are sitting under the sound of the gospel don't want to change what the gospel is and that they're prepared uh, to listen. What are we finding here in the life of, of Naomi? There was a sense in which I think she and uh, her husband were, were, were drifting into that category. They've been happy with a degree of commitment, but it obviously wasn't everything to them. And it was a Sunday, maybe a Sunday morning only situation that was, that was coming into her life. But the Lord wasn't prepared to let that stay. I'm sure there's truth in this. It might not be the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but I'm sure there's truth in it. Someone has said that God will allow you to fall into sin if you're a believer, but he won't allow you to wallow in it. He has his ways of bringing you back. And maybe that was what had happened uh, in the life of Naomi. She lost her husband and she had lost her two sons. And if God was using a megaphone rather than a still small voice, I think I would have to plunk for the megaphone that God was really speaking to her in her troubles and bringing her back. I went out full and the Lord has brought me back empty. We need to spend just a few more minutes, I think, on Naomi and on that situation. I think we need to maybe check our lives on what is important in our lives and where we might have the spirit of Naomi, the spirit of wandering off for perceived advantage wandering out of the Lord's will, if we can put it that way, so that we are a bit more willful and we're chasing the things that really don't stack up and last all that well. I think that's important. And that may be different in each of our lives. It may be the doting grandfather syndrome who, the long as it's the grandchild's doing it, doesn't see any harm in it. And maybe that may be early onset doting grandfather syndrome. It might just be a father syndrome or a mother syndrome. That as long as it's keeping the children happy and they're not, they're not standing out all that different from the, all our children that they're mixing with. You know, maybe it is the jealousy over the home or the, the car or whatever else, or it's the work or the career or whatever, and uh, shortcuts are taken. You know, God seems to have a time in which he, he, he does things. One of the books that I bought many years ago was a, a book on pastoral visitation. And it was by a consultant in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary. And uh, <clears throat> some of the things in it were, were helpful. 
some of you know I was hospital chaplain in, in Coleraine and Causeway for 10 years and uh, I look back on some of those, those memories but uh, sometimes it's the little asides that you remember more than even the content uh, sometimes of the book. I'm, I'm trying to remember the man's name. I think it was Short. But he was almost the youngest consultant physician in the United Kingdom. He had applied for a job. I can't remember. I think it was just medicine or something like that. Uh, speciality. Uh, and it was in Bristol from memory. And he was shortlisted, and he, he was number two. And he thought to himself, well, you know, if it was number two and I'm only, whatever, 28 or 29 years of age, this is looking good. And then he tells the story how job after job come up, and he didn't get it. And he was into his 40s, I think quite well into his 40s before the job come up in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and he got it. He had given up any idea that he would ever get that promotion. And then he says, you know, with the job in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, you became the Queen's physician in Scotland. You know, when she went off to Balmoral for a wee bit of a holiday and she had a wee bit of a cough, who did she send for? It was him and who got to be well-known and, and got to be well-treated in high society. You see, sometimes it's not looking for the preference. It's just waiting on God's time. And sometimes the Lord is going to give even higher preference, even in this life, because of it. Don't fall into the trap of the Naomi syndrome. And then the other thing that we want to look at is the whole idea of the relative here, although we'll say more about that in Leviathan marriage uh, later on. But we have here the graciousness of God really springing to the fore in the relief of the poor. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, this whole idea of gleaning. I uh, haven't looked a lot at it, but it wasn't just a few bits of corn that fell. Can you imagine a tight Ulster farmer and this tribe of people landing in the field? You know, I grew up on a farm. Can you imagine what they would think of it? What are those boys doing there? Could they not go and get a job? You know, the Lord had so designed it. It wasn't just the odd bit of grain. In fact, it was the side of the, the corner of the field was to be left, sheaves and all, so that people could come and glean. It's a wee bit like the stories you hear of grape-growing regions in, in France or whatever, where, you know, the, the grapes beside the road are, are left for people to eat. It just doesn't fit in with our mindset here, does it? Uh, what are they leaving that for? I, I was caught with that uh, this summer because a, a friend of ours was getting married, a very good friend of mine, his daughter, was getting married and, and she bought a house. So it's, she'd been in Edinburgh University and as the usual thing happened. She, she, she married uh, another student from Aberdeen and they, they bought this, this little rickle of a house 
uh, in this little village outside Edinburgh, but then they don't have little records of houses and streets and little villages outside Edinburgh. They have something, a couple hundred thousand, uh, for something that uh, here, ten years ago, people would have thought of knocking down uh, rather than even living in. But it, it's gentrified and it's got a nice conservatory kitchen and whatever. But it's beside a 40-acre, it's on a row, and behind the houses, there's about a 40-acre field in which they grow grain. And, it, and you look out the conservatory kitchen and you see the field and you look down to, well, Leith and to uh, the, whatever the Firth is down there. And it's a, it's a beautiful sight. But there was something that absolutely seemed counterintuitive to me was that when you went out of their little garden, which was about a tenth the size of this room we're in, when you went out of this little garden through a hole in the hedge that had a pallet on it, there was about six or eight feet of the field in which the owner of the field basically just allowed everybody to plant their vegetables and grow their garden. Imagine giving people that didn't own the ground the right to use or the privilege of using the ground. What was happening here? The Lord, you know, invented something much better in a sense than the welfare state. Everything was been taken care of in that they were able to go and they were able to glean. And we get, we get a sort of picture of it, how Boaz had to warn off his men, don't be treating these people badly. And how Boaz was able to look at her and say, you know, come over here and sit here and there's a morsel of bread and there's a cup of wine, whatever, and dip it into it and eat what everybody else is eating. And uh, the Lord was treating her well. The relief of the poor. And then the whole idea of a, the relative comes in, doesn't it? Uh, and the relative being Boaz. But the, we could say a bit more about Boaz, but we'll say this about him. Yesterday we talked about Ruth being from the wrong side of the tracks. You remember if you were here, I used that term, or the, the name of that place, Fuque Farina. It was a, a double-named village. And uh, uh, it was called Fukwe because one side of the railway tracks was called Fukwe. And the other side of the railway track that ran through the place was called Varina. And uh, they just named the town Fukwe Farina. But one side was rich and the other was poor. In this case, one was black and the other was white. One was living a lot on state benefits and food stamps. The other was living off the wealth and extreme wealth. And the church that I was in was very white and very, very wealthy. None of these lights, chandeliers, none of this carpet, carpet that you would sink up to your knees in. It was a wealthy congregation. And, and the reason I mentioned that was that Ruth came from the, what Americans term the wrong side of the tracks, because that story is, is seen in many ways all over the United States. Ruth came from the wrong side of the tracks. But what about Boaz? Who was Boaz? Boaz's mother was Rahab. 
She was a harlot. She was a woman who made her living by selling her body. And that's who Boaz's mother was. You know, you would keep that quiet, wouldn't you? I have a friend in the ministry <coughs> who's half Korean, half American. And he's a product of the Korean War. And uh, about 15 years ago, he decided that he was going to try and track down his father. His father was an American soldier. Now, as a wee boy, he and his brother were sent to the States and they were adopted by a Korean person and an American person, the same setup as his, his birth parents. And, uh, but he decided he would do a wee bit of digging. And of course, the American military weren't interested. They don't tell stories. They weren't prepared to give information. But the startling thing that he did find was that his mother was a Rahab. Exactly the same. A Rahab. And it almost, it almost mirrors the story, uh, the Orpha bit of it and the, the Ruth bit. Because Mark, we'll give him his name, uh, uh, is a, one of the most godly ministers I know, one of the most scholarly ministers I know. And his brother, he spent time in and out of prison. And so often when you contact Mark, his brother's getting out of jail again. I'm going to try to get him into a flat, trying to sort <coughs> him out. Would you ever look at that situation and say, what's that boy doing in the ministry? No, you would never even vaguely allow that to enter into your head. But here again, in God's grace, he is saying, wow, he could have had somebody else, but his Boaz, whose mother was a common prostitute. And remember, the line goes on to Obed and Jesse and David and great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? And again, I keep thinking, you know, <clears throat> I think if I was preaching this over the hill and down at the coast, I'd be saying, why do we not have more Boazes from that point of view? How do, why do we not have any Boazes in the congregation from that point of view? Why do we not have any Ruths in the congregation? Why are we so ingrown? Why? And it's not easy. It's not easy to reach out sometimes to the other side of the tracks. Going back to that Sunday morning in Fukui Farina, there was a well-dressed, well-suited black man and his wife in the congregation and the comment and they were nice enough people but the comment was you have to understand they're just here to make a point that was the sort of welcome that they were getting it might have been somebody that drove up on the latest BMW or whatever else it might have been someone who had really made it in business it might have even been a university lecturer or professor but that was the point, the drift that was coming from that. Sometimes it's very difficult to see 
beyond those things and very difficult to know what to do. But, but, but when we get to this line, when we get to the line of our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, what's his background? Boaz? Rahab? Ruth? All sorts of genealogies that we would not be all that comfortable with. And just, if you want another hour, and we're going a wee bit ahead of ourselves, want another hour as we draw things near a close, remember the refusal. We don't have a name for the nearest kinsman. He's not even mentioned by name. The one who said, oh, this could be an economic disaster for me if I, if I do the right thing here, so I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to buy the field. I'm not going to be the kinsman redeemer. I refusal. And the man with no name, not included. But what have we here? We have the man with the prostitute for a mother. And we have this foreign, pagan, God-hater being pulled in by the grace of God into the congregation of God's people. It's a challenge, isn't it? challenge for each of us as we go forward. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these things and as we try to <clears throat> almost unweave the tapestry that, that you have placed before us, take out the threads and, and see their individual significance, we realize, Lord, that there is a lot that we need to be considering in our own hearts and our own lives. We can have a, a comfort Lord, that uh, seeks to see us as different and more uh, respectable, more aloof from uh, those around us. And yet, Lord, we realize that uh, <clears throat> the dignity uh, in the human life comes from being made in the image of God. And when we think of all the image bearers that we bump into, some of them just culturally so different from what we are. When we think of this land that we love and live in and treasure, and we think even in your providence, the, the foreigners who have come, and yet, in a way, so few of them, Lord, part of uh, worshiping congregations, being brought in uh, to your kingdom. And so little effort, in a sense, being made to do that. We, we are ashamed of our own thoughts. When we think of the spirit of Naomi, the, the grasping spirit, the taking the things of your kingdom lightly, Lord, we see that in our hearts also. And we pray your forgiveness for it. And we pray that you indeed would give us a, a, a real heart to have done with the lesser things, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness.
And Lord, leaving even the adding of all our things to our lives up to you. Bless us, we pray, Lord. Bless us uh, as we uh, praise you, for we ask it in the Saviour's name. Amen.